0: Can I tell you what I think the ugliest thing is on this planet? Entitlement. You ever seen somebody that acts just overly spoiled, bratty, entitled? There's just something about that that just... Great. And I think all of us. Uh, I found a whole bunch of atrocious stories... Uh, I'm just going to share a couple uh, short ones with you this morning. Look at this first one. Uh, A lady, her name was Laura, said, I was at a Christmas Eve party where the kids of the family that was hosting got mad they couldn't open any presents yet. So they proceeded to throw wrapped gifts into the fireplace. They got about five or six gifts into the fire before their dad stepped in. She says it was one of the most outrageous things I've ever witnessed. Listen to this one. My mom made homemade gifts for my dad's younger sisters one year, but they scoffed and said handmade gifts were cheap and worthless, and they, quote-unquote, wanted something better next time. (laughs) How about this last one? I'm sure we can all relate. A daughter of a business friend Refused a new gold Mercedes convertible because she told her parents, "Quote, you knew I wanted a black one." <laughs> That's probably the, the most unrelatable. I read all kinds of these. There's something about something, uh, seeing something like that, hearing something like that, that just tends to mm, great on us, right? Slowing or slowness. Is the spiritual practice of intentional patience. Slowing or slowness is the spiritual practice of intentional patience. You're like, wow, that was a quite a right hand turn from those stories of entitlement to the practice of slowness. Yes, and I'll explain why in just a second. But I was thinking about this. We're in our really our last week of our slow series. Uh, we'll be talking about slow, a slow Christmas uh, next Sunday. Uh, speaking of which, especially if you're a regular attender here at TLC, you call TLC home. This is the perfect week to invite a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, uh, maybe someone from your family uh, that doesn't have a church that, that, that they are currently attending. Uh, folks are really open to going to church around Christmas. And next week is going to be our kind of our Christmas service. We do have a Christmas Eve service as well on the 24th, but next Sunday on the 19th. If you've been thinking about somebody, God's maybe highlighted somebody in your mind from from your work or your neighborhood, uh, this is the week to invite. Folks are very open uh, often to saying, yeah, I'd love to come to church. It's kind of a cool thing to do during Christmas season. So next week, we're going to be talking about a slow Christmas. Uh, what happened in that moment, the gift that Christ was, and what he brought to us, and how uh, beautiful and amazing it is. This week, we're talking uh, about our final practice in this series that we've been talking about, how we adopt the lifestyle of Jesus so that then we can live out the life that Jesus intended for us. Uh, I realize, though, I don't know that we've ever really defined what a spiritual practice is. We've all heard about spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. They're probably not, if you grew up in the church, this is probably not new language for you. If you didn't grow up in the church, maybe you're like, yeah, I I kind of understand what it means, but let me give a definition of what a spiritual practice is. A spiritual practice is anything that is based on the life and teaching of Jesus. That's what a spiritual practice is. It's anything that's based on the life and teaching of Jesus. So we talked about silence and solitude. That's something that he practiced. We've talked about Sabbath, also something that Jesus practiced. Uh, something that he talked about. Uh, We've talked about uh, simplicity, something that Jesus and Christians throughout uh, history have practiced. There's a whole host of things based on Jesus' life and teaching that we could look at. Uh, These are big things and small things that just help us learn how to live the way Jesus desires us to live, helps shape our minds to think the way that Jesus thought, shapes our words to say the things, respond to people the way uh, Jesus did. Uh, This week, we're talking about the practice of slowness. Most practices that we talk about are practices that Christians have been practicing for like 2,000 years, like from the very beginning. This is a practice that no one's really talked much about until probably the last 20 or 30 years, which quite honestly ought to raise all kinds of caution flags, right? The second we start talking about a Christian spiritual practice that Christians have not been practicing for the last 2,000 years might make you at least throw up some like, hey, hmm, why is that? Is this really worth our time to be talking about, thinking about? I'm so glad you asked. You see, the practice of slowness, and I will explain why it's a new practice in a little while, I believe is actually an antidote to entitlement, The practice of slowness, I believe, is an antidote to entitlement. And so what I'd like for us to do this morning is I'd like you to grab your Bibles. We're going to spend some time looking at how Jesus practiced this in his own life in the Gospel of John. We're going to start in John chapter 2. Jesus use, uses a phrase multiple times that John records for us. And it will help us set the stage for the practice that I believe God would love to see you and I begin to incorporate into our lives. So, John chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Just to set up the context, Jesus has just called uh, his disciples to him, to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And I'm sure she said it's something like that. All right? It was less a statement and more a request. Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, when we (laughs) hear the words woman, (laughs) all right, that is not how any son should speak to their mother, all right? At that time, to use the word, uh, the Greek word uh, for woman was not Uh, disrespectful, okay? It is a very respectful way for Jesus to interact with his mother. It sounds really awkward to our ears today. And sons, do not look at your mother and say, woman, okay? That will not go over well for you. Or within a few years of his age, to follow him, all right? He is now their rabbi. And this is all happening when he's about 30 years old, which is fairly young for a rabbi to start calling followers to himself. If I'm Jesus, okay, I want my hour to come now. I'm ready to show everybody, to show off, let everybody know who I am, why the 12 that are following me ought to grow to like 1,200, right? But Jesus looks at his mom because he knows what she's asking, and he says, my hour hasn't come yet. Now, in Jesus' kindness, he actually does his first miracle, turns water into wine. But he does it on a pretty sly way. I mean, if you're going to do a miracle like this, I wouldn't have done it when I'm like, hey, just um, go fill those jugs up with water and then bring them to the, to the head of the party. I'd have been like, get the jugs of water, make them seven, fill them to the brim. Come hither with me to the center of the party. What do you see? Water you see? Yes, well, dip thy hand in it now and find the best wine of all. Like, I would have made a public spectacle of this thing, right? Jesus doesn't do it that way. He says his hour hasn't yet come. Uh, Flip with me to John chapter 7. At this point in Jesus' life, he's been ministering uh, now publicly, doing miracles and teaching uh, all throughout Israel, but mostly in the northern part. Uh, I've got a, a... let me throw up a, a, a map so you guys can see real quick. I'll, I'll point out a couple of spots. So you see there's kind of, um, on the left-hand side, there's kind of three areas, Galilee, Samaria, and Judea, okay? Galilee is the region where Jesus was raised. You see Nazareth is uh, kind of on the bottom end of that yellow spot. That's where Jesus was kind of raised. He does most of his ministry um, on the Sea of Galilee, which is the blue lake that you kind of see um, up there, and, and, and kind of all in that area is where he does most of his ministry. Now, Jerusalem, though, all right, which is where the temple is, and that's where most of the, all the major feasts uh, would happen, that's in Judea, okay? If you go down through the blue into the brown part, you'll see Jerusalem's got a line under it, all right? Uh, that's, that's quite a trek to get from there uh, down to Jerusalem from where Jesus is kind of at. Uh, I just want you to see that because it will be kind of important in, in the passage we're just about to look at, Okay. This is uh, chapter 7. We're going to look in verse 1, but we kind of need to set up what's happening here. Jesus has been doing this public ministry for quite a while at this point. A lot of people have been coming and following him. He's got his 12 disciples, but there's always been other disciples that have been following Jesus as well. Jesus just walked on water. Uh, Jesus then has a teaching where he says some really hard things. And in that teaching that Jesus gives, there's a whole lot of disciples possibly hundreds, that listen to Jesus' teaching and they're like, yeah, man, I can't follow you anymore. Yeah, you're like too extreme. You're too weird. You're too crazy. Like, like if you're going to become the king that we want, right, if you're going to th- get rid of Rome and, and, and sit on the, like, then I'll follow you. But, man, the stuff you're talking about is crazy. And so a whole bunch of people leave him. Jesus then looks at his 12 disciples and he says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter looks at him and says, where else could we go? You alone have the words of life. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. That's that northern part. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So remember, that's where the temple is at. That's where Jerusalem is at, okay, in the southern part. Jesus continues to do ministry in the northern part of Israel. He doesn't want to go down because the Jewish leaders are seeking to kill him. He is a threat to their power structures. So he says in verse two, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. In other words, like, hey, you're calling yourself this Messiah, this rabbi, this big shot. You say you're sent from God. These are his younger brothers. His younger brothers do not believe that he is who he says he is. They've seen some of the things that Jesus has done because he's been doing it all around them. They're like, why don't you go down to Judea? Go down to the temple, man. Show off. People are leaving you in droves. Why don't you go down there and show who you say you are? Leave Galilee, go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. Verse four, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. That's what they say. Then it says this little note for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Verse six, therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not. uh, I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. Jesus says, I'm not going up to the festival. That's because Jerusalem was on a hill. So anytime that people talked about going to Jerusalem, to the temple, they would always say they're going up to Jerusalem, whether they're in the northern part coming south or whether in the southern part coming up north, it was always going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I'm not going to, my time hasn't come yet. If I'm Jesus and people are leaving me in droves and my own brothers are mocking me, oh my goodness, I would be... I would be riding up deep with my 12 in some chariots to Jerusalem. I would pop out at the temple. I'd start spider maning lightning, pow, pow. I'd be like showing off all of my power. I'd be like, all y'all suckers that didn't wanna believe, now you're gonna believe. I'd be talking smack, okay? I would be bringing, like that's, I, I would wanna show, I would wanna do exactly what Jesus' brothers say. But Jesus says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. only time that Jesus said this, I promise you what everybody who heard him was thinking. They're thinking when his time comes, that's when he's going to take over the throne of Israel. That's when he's going to kick out Rome. There's going to be war. We're going to take over. He's going to be the king. We're going to be like Close to him, right? That power, the privilege is going to rub off on us. That's what everybody assumed Jesus meant when he said, my hour has not come, but it's going to. And yet Jesus is willing to be patient. Jesus travels slowly. Jesus walks from town to town. The only time that we have recorded of Jesus not walking, he's riding a young donkey, not a powerful fast stallion. Jesus continues to lay down his godness to walk slowly among us. Flip over to John chapter 13. Another time where Jesus talks about the hour but this is when he actually finally says the hour has come. When Jesus finally says that the hour has come, after announcing multiple times previously that his hour or his time has not fully come yet, it's the night before, it's actually the night where he's going to be betrayed, where he's going to be arrested and beaten, and then the next day where he's going to be crucified. That's when Jesus finally says his hour has come. We see it in chapter 13, verse 1. He says, well, just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Finally, Jesus' hour has come. And what does Jesus do when his hour finally comes? He serves his disciples. The very next story is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He comforts his disciples. He's been telling them all along what's going to happen, but they just haven't understood. They haven't gotten it or they didn't want to believe. Now they're finally starting to understand something, something bad is coming. This is, not, this is not ending the way that we thought it was going to end. And so he comforts them. In fact, he says that the Holy Spirit, he's going to have to leave them, but the Holy Spirit's going to come. And it's actually in their best interest if he goes so that the Holy Spirit can come. He actually begins to teach them. He instructs them and lets them know ahead of time, look, some hard times are going to come for you. You're going to experience suffering and difficulty. But just know this, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be right there with you. My spirit is going to be with you. And then he actually reminds them that the pain and grief, the anguish that they're going to experience is going to turn into joy. He sets up hope within their hearts when Jesus' hour has finally come. And then we read John chapter 17, the last time that John records this phrase, my hour has not yet come, or my hour has come. We see it in John chapter 17, which is the prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples just before he's about to be betrayed. Verse 1 says, After Jesus said all of this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, on the one hand, Jesus' time seems really short, right? I've had the privilege of pastoring this church now for about four and a half years. Jesus had about three years with his disciples. And it made me, I was starting to think, I was like, man, what if like all I had was three years? Would I feel confident about who TLC is and our following of Jesus if all I had was three years? And I'm like, whew, <laughs> I don't feel super confident at four and a half years, all right? I feel like there's so much more that I'm supposed to share, so many more ways that I'm supposed to grow, ways that we're supposed to grow together. Jesus had three years, which on the one hand feels really short. But on the other hand, if you know what Jesus left behind, right, all power and glory, that feels like a really long time to just slowly wait for God to work out what he needed to do. I would have been ready like day one, baptized, Holy Spirit comes down, God announces who I am, let's go, (laughs) right? Food for the hungry, take out the evil. I would have done all of it. Where's my angels? Let's go, boys. I don't know if they're boys. They're probably not boys. Whatever angels are, okay? Jesus is slow within that. Whatever way you see it, though, as being a long period or a short period, one thing remains consistent. Jesus trusts his Father to bring it about in his time. And that is a powerful move when we see Jesus slowly walking through the ministry that God has laid out. And when the hour finally comes, it's not an hour where he's going to sit on a throne. It's an hour where he's going to get hung on a cross, where he's going to slowly die a terribly painful, awful death. For us. But he does know what it leads to. (laughs) It leads to resurrection. And so Jesus is willing to go through the discipline of patience. Now, why has nobody written about or Christians practiced for the last 2,000 years the spiritual practice of slowness? This is why. Because for about the last 1,950 years, society has stayed in a relatively similar pace of life. For about 1950 years, the fastest that a human being ever traveled was the speed of a horse. Can you imagine? Like, since Jesus' time to like the 1930s or 40, the fastest that anybody had ever traveled was the speed of a horse. Horses, a pretty good one with a rider, can go about 25 miles an hour, okay? A horse can travel over the course of about 10 hours, really over about probably 24 hours because they need time to rest and sleep, about 50 miles. So the fastest anybody was ever going. It was about 25 miles an hour, maybe about 50 miles in a day. If you had a good horse that could kind of get you there, an airplane today in 10 hours can take you 4,000 miles. That's 80 times faster. Uh, You and I drove cars here. Many of you were on the expressway, which means you're probably doing, I will (laughs) gently say, 75 miles an hour, all right? That's three times, not double, all right? But three times faster than anybody's been able to travel for 1,950 years. A Ducati Panigale can do at least 168 miles an hour. It is not necessary for you to know why I know that speed. My wife, I will say, is um, way better at the practice of slowness than I am. Uh, you and I live in a day and age when we travel at the speed of the internet, right? We, we talk to people on the other side of the world where we can actually see their face and it's happening instantaneously. And so what happens is you and I, we get used to everything coming to us when we want it, as we want it. We don't like waiting, we wait for almost nothing. And this has turned many of us, myself included, into the ugliest thing on planet Earth. (laughs) Entitled human beings. Now, uh, if you're like me, you're probably pretty decent at hiding it most of the time, right? We don't always show it. We're not throwing gifts into the fireplace, all right, when we get... But it definitely comes out in all kinds of different ways. I know that it does for me. Um, This past week, Brennan and I were uh, driving someplace together, and she was driving, and uh, it was a two-lane road, and there was cars parked on either side, okay, double yellow line. On the side over here... We're going this way. A big truck's coming this way. Somebody's parked and they're getting out of their car. So the truck, instead of slowing down, knowing that it's really tight there and somebody's getting out of their car, the truck doesn't slow down at all. It just comes across the double yellow kind of a little bit into our lane, okay? Now, I instantly said, what a jerk. Double yellow, slow down. What does my wife do though? Because she's more Jesus-y than me, like a lot more. She actually slows down and kind of moves over. And I actually kind of said something to her, like, why are you like that? You, you stay where you're at. You go right on through. You Tell this dude what's up, right? The practice of slowness is intended to be an antidote to entitlement. Uh, Jesus gave up everything for us. If anybody should be, could be, ought to be entitled, Jesus should be, could be, ought to be. And yet he chose to lay that down. Let's look at one more passage together. In Philippians, keep flipping over a little bit more. You've got Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Keep going a little further. Galatians, Ephesians, you'll hit Philippians chapter 2. Apostle Paul says this. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who... Being in very nature God, in other words, he's 100% God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Even though he is God, he lays that down when he comes to earth and not use all of his godness to his advantage. He says, rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death On a cross. And when that happened, verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me give you the why that we would practice slowness. By practicing slowness, we choose to not give ourselves something we want so that when someone else chooses to not give us something we want, including potentially God, we don't react in anger or frustration like an entitled child. If we're always used to getting whatever we want, whenever we want, we become entitled, which is the opposite of Jesus. It's the opposite of how Jesus acted and interacted with us. So we need to learn to practice slowness because the more we become accustomed to not getting everything that we desire exactly when we want to get it, that will help us so that when somebody else doesn't give us what we want, possibly a neighbor or a coworker, uh, possibly something in a work meeting or when your spouse doesn't bend to your preferences, we're able to experience these disappointments without losing our peace and our joy without losing our love for others. This practice allows us to intentionally slow ourselves down so that we can learn that we neither need to be in the first place nor do we deserve the first place, whether that is driving and coming up to the light (laughs) or whether that is a whole host of other things in our relationships with the people around us. There's a number of kingdom truths that the practice of slowness actually helps us learn. The first will be last, the last will be first. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. It's better to give than to receive, to serve than to be served. And that by picking up our cross and dying to ourselves is where we will actually find life. Now, I, uh, I told you last week that I've been practicing simplicity a little bit and that I was only wearing like these three sweatshirts that I have And some of you are like, oh yeah, but you ain't wearing it today, what's up? I'm not, because somebody actually gave me this t-shirt last week, and they had no idea what was coming, but I was like, this is awesome, I'm going to wear this next Sunday. It's a motorcycle uh, shop down in Atlanta, Georgia, and this is their uh, slogan, Slow Down, Open Up. The name of our, the title for our message today was Slow is Smooth and Smooth is Fast. Uh, What that means is uh, it's something that motorcycle racers uh, will use when they're on a racetrack. Whenever somebody gets out on a racetrack, they usually want to go as fast as they possibly can. That's actually how you win. The problem is, is when you're trying to go really fast, uh, you often uh, wind up speeding up too quick and hitting the brakes too quick. And what they say is that you want to learn to be smooth. And the only way to be smooth is to be slow. So they say slow is smooth and smooth is fast. In other words, if you want to get where you're going, the goal isn't to just to jump out there and try to go as fast as you possibly can. The goal is to slow yourself down so that you can do it smoothly. And when that happens, you will begin to experience a life or a motorcycle on a racetrack in a different way. Uh, Their slogan really means this. When they say, slow down, open up, what they're talking about is slow down and then you can open up the throttle. This is the life that I believe Jesus is calling us to. Practicing slowness is actually how we build muscle memory for picking up our cross. Practicing slowness is how we build muscle memory for picking up our cross. Look, friends, I will tell you, when Jesus said his hour has come, it was not a glorious, wonderful moment for him. It was the cross. And when Jesus calls you and I, to this practice of slowness, it's so that we can learn how to pick up our cross as well, to not always get the things that we desire, that we want, that we long for. So how do we practice this? Uh, I'm going to tell you, because this is a really hard one, turn it into a game, okay? I want you to gamify the practice of slowness. And I'm going to give you, if you're a note taker, there's gonna come up pretty fast and furious. (laughs) See what I did there, slow, uh, okay. So pull out your phones. You can take pictures of these, and then I want you to think about how you might turn this into a game in your life, okay? So here's, uh, here's some things that you can do to begin to help create the muscle memory of picking up your cross by learning to purposefully go slow and not get what you want all the time. Number one, take a half day a week to drive the speed limit. If you make the full half day, give yourself a point, all right? Give yourself a point every time you come to a complete stop at a stop sign. When's the last time you came to a complete stop at a stop sign? Unless you had to, right? The car in front of you came to it. Most of the time, never. It feels weird. I don't know why. It's a stop sign. It shouldn't feel weird, but it feels weird. Number three, show up to an appointment 10 minutes early and don't take your phone out of your pocket. If you can do that, give yourself a point. All right, get in the longest line at the checkout. (laughs) There was visible, audible gasps. That was fantastic. Thank you. Number four, parent your phone by putting it to bed an hour before you go to sleep. Be a good parent to your phone for crying out loud. I'm trying. I'm not very good yet, but I'm getting better. Keep your phone plugged in until you've spent at least five minutes with Jesus in prayer and the Word in the morning. If you do that, give yourself another point. Eat a meal by yourself and don't take out your phone. You look weird. You feel weird. I did it last week. I know. Trust me. I got like halfway through my meal and I was like, well, there's some emails I could work on. (laughs) I made it halfway, so I gave myself 20 points. Oh, single task. There is no such thing as multitasking anyway. Practice single-tasking. If you do that, give yourself a point. Walk slower. Fast for two meals back-to-back on purpose. If you do either one of those, give yourself a point. And if you rack up 20 points, then reward yourself. The purpose of this discipline, and if we don't practice it on our own volition, when the time comes that we have no choice in the matter, it will rob our peace and our joy and our love. But if we practice these things ahead of time, when that time to pick up our cross comes, it will allow us to do so with joy and peace and love. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower said, what is urgent is seldom important and what is important is seldom urgent. How true is that? Let us be a people who practice slowness so that we can experience the lifestyle of Jesus and the life of Jesus that that leads to. Father, it's easy to talk about these things. At least it's a lot easier for me to talk about them than it is for me to live them. But Father, I want to live them because I want to be somebody who takes up my cross, Father, I know that that is where life is truly found. If I fight for my own life, I'm going to lose it. But when I give my life up for you, that's where I find it. That's true for all of us. So let us be a people who embody these truths and live them out in our modern, crazy, harried and hurried life. Let us be a people who look different so that we can be filled with that hope and joy peace, love that people are desperate to find. Let us be reservoirs to shower that on others. Spirit, we give you permission. Do what you need to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.